CHAPTER IV OF FIFTY YEARS A DETECTIVE THIRTY FIVE REAL DETECTIVE STORIES This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry Fifty Years A Detective Thirty Five Real Detective Stories by Thomas Furlong The Preller Murder Case Part Two from Dinkfelter's daily reports, I learned that Maxwell had admitted that he had killed Preller for the purpose of obtaining seven $100 bills that he knew Preller to have, as he had shown him the money in the Adams house at Boston before they separated there. He also had pawned the plunder for the money which had brought him to America, and that he had made Preller believe that he was connected with the titled family of Maxwell that his right name was Hugh M. Brooks, and that he would like to place himself under the guidance and advice of an able crook, as he believed Dingfelter to be, when he gained his liberty, as he was sure he would in the near future. He told Dingfelter in detail how he had killed Preller by administering an overdose of morphia, hypodermically, of how, after dinner on the fatal Sunday, Preller had complained of a pain in his stomach, that he, Maxwell, saw that was his opportunity for carrying out the plan he had already formed for taking Preller's life in order to secure the money, that he had provided himself with a large quantity of morphia and the hypodermic syringe, and that he had also procured four ounces of chloroform for the purpose of administering it to Preller immediately before death to prevent the body from becoming rigid as it does immediately after death, as said Maxwell, in his explanation to Dingfelter, I had to conceal his long body in the trunk, which was so much shorter, and I did not want to cut off his limbs, fearing that the trace of the blood would betray me. On receiving Dingfelter's report relative to the use of the morphia in the murder, I at once reported the fact to Messrs. Clover and MacDonald, who immediately arranged with two of the most prominent doctors in St. Louis to examine the body of Preller for traces of the morphia. Messrs. Clover, MacDonald, the doctors, an official of Bellefontaine Cemetery, and myself, went to the cemetery where Preller's body had been buried, exhumed the body, and the doctors made the necessary examination, keeping what they discovered to themselves, and they did not divulge anything about it until called on to testify at Maxwell's trial when they said that the traces of the hypodermic syringe were plainly visible on the arm, and that traces of morphia were found. When Maxwell was arrested, a quantity of morphia was found among his effects, and also the hypodermic syringe, but up to this discovery neither had been considered in connection with the murder, as it had been taken for granted that Preller's death had been caused by chloroform. Of course, the exhuming of the body and the arrangement that had been made were known to no one but Messrs. Clover, MacDonald, the two doctors, the cemetery official, and myself, and was treated as a profound secret. Meanwhile, after Dingfelter had been in jail and had obtained the information we wanted from Maxwell, I decided that it was unnecessary to keep him there longer, so I arranged to have Dingfelter released on bail, which had been fixed at $3,500. I had ex-judge Henry D. Lochlin of St. Louis sign Dingfelter's bond. 
I did this without Judge Lachlan's knowing that I even knew who Dingfelter was. Upon his release, I immediately sent him to New York, where he entered into correspondence with friends of Maxwell's. Just before being released, he asked Maxwell if he could keep a secret, and Maxwell said that he could, whereupon Dingfelter said, I expect to leave this place soon. How are you going to get out? asked Maxwell. Ah, said Dingfelter, that is none of your business. You said you could keep a secret, and the first thing you are doing is to pry into my business by asking how I am going to get out. After I am gone from here, of course, you will know it. But if you do not know how I propose to get out, it will be impossible for you to tell anyone about it. For that reason, it is better that you should not know anything further than what I have already said. Maxwell apologised, and promised not to be so inquisitive again. Dingfelter then said, Now, Maxwell, after I am on the outside and away from this place, if I can do anything for you consistently, I shall be glad to do it. You can do a whole lot for me, Maxwell answered, by getting two of your friends to come here when my trial is called and have them testify that they met Preller and myself in Boston and that they accompanied us to the depot when we were leaving Boston. That at the depot I proposed that the party take a parting drink, that Preller, these two men and myself, went to a cafe and that I ordered two bottles of champagne, and that when I paid for it, I displayed a roll of seven $100 bills, that I explained that I wanted to change one of these $100 bills so that I might have some smaller change to pay expenses on my way to St. Louis. If they will testify to this, it will account for the six $100 bills I took from Preller. Dingfelter asked, Are you sure that your lawyers will not get these friends of mine into trouble? or let the police get next to them, if I can get them to come? Maxwell assured Dingfelter that his friends would be perfectly safe in coming to St. Louis, and that the police would not get next to them, providing, of course, that the parties were not already known to the police. He took a card bearing his name from his pocket, and tore it in two halves, giving one half to Dingfelter and retaining the other himself, saying, Be sure and give these witnesses half of the card which will serve to identify them to my attorneys when they arrive here, as that half of the card will match the half that I will retain. The edges of the torn card will match and will answer the purpose of an introduction. It was about five o'clock in the evening when Dingfelter was released from jail on bond, and at that hour the courts in the building had adjourned for the day, and the newspaper correspondents and all others had left the building except the few attachés who were on duty. Thus, Dingfelter left the jail unobserved. On his release from the jail, he came to my house by a circuitous route, where he remained until a late hour that night, when he left to take a train for New York. I instructed him to open a correspondence with Maxwell on his arrival in New York, so as to get positive instructions from Maxwell as to what the witnesses were to testify to, when they appeared on the stand in his defence. He carried out these instructions to the letter. His letters reached Maxwell through his attorneys, and Maxwell's letters reached him through the same source. And in due time, all the letters were sent to me with his report. They kept up this correspondence at intervals until Maxwell's trial was called. I told Dingfelter to appear in St. Louis on the morning of the trial, which he did. 
on arriving here he went to a private lodging-house and being a stranger in the city his presence was unknown to any person but himself and the circuit attorneys clover and macdonald when his trial was called maxwell took the stand in his own defence and testified that he had administered chloroform to his friend preller on the fatal evening at the southern hotel for the purpose of allaying the pain that he was suffering from as both messrs clover and macdonald had predicted he would testify maxwell went on to state that preller's suffering was caused by an acute attack of stricture from which he had been suffering more or less for some time on hearing this testimony from maxwell it was decided to again exhume the body of preller so that the two doctors could make another examination of the remains and either corroborate or disprove maxwell's testimony as this was one of the most vital points in the trial when the body was exhumed the doctors removed the organs taking them to their laboratory where the examination was made and they later came into court and testified that their examination had shown beyond a doubt that preller had never suffered from stricture frank dingfelter was among the first witnesses called by the prosecution in answer to his name he entered the courtroom from the private office of the circuit attorney and after being duly sworn took his seat on the witness stand after sitting down he turned his face towards attorney macdonald who was conducting the prosecution for the state maxwell got a full view of dingfelter for the first time since he had seen him in the jail from where i was sitting i could get a good view of maxwell's countenance i was watching him closely and when he saw dingfelter he recognised him instantly he turned ashy pale and nearly fainted and would have fallen out of his chair were it not that he was partly supported by one of his attorneys who was sitting beside him he hurriedly communicated to his attorney that he had recognised dingfelter whereupon the attorneys for the defence became very much excited dingfelter was asked by attorney macdonald the following questions question what is your name answer john f mcculloch question where were you born answer wilmington delaware question how old are you answer thirty years question what is your business answer detective question by whom are you employed answer thomas furlong question do you know the defendant in this case pointing to maxwell answer yes sir question where did you first become acquainted with him answer in the city jail question were you a prisoner in the jail answer yes sir question what were you charged with answer i believe it was forgery question when and where were you arrested answer i was arrested at the mechanics bank on the corner of fourth and pine streets this city by thomas furlong who was afterwards assisted by a police officer whose name i do not know question why did furlong arrest you answer he was commanded to do so by the paying teller of the mechanics bank question why did the teller cause your arrest answer because i presented a cheque bearing what purported to be the signature of d s h smith local treasurer of the missouri pacific railroad company the paying teller told furlong in my presence that the signature was a forgery question did you know it to be a forgery answer i did not 
Question. Where did you get this cheque? Answer. Mr. Furlong gave me the cheque and instructed me to present it at the bank, as I did, and told me that he would be at the bank when I presented it. Question. Was Mr. Furlong there? Answer. Yes. He came into the bank while I was at the teller's window. That was when Mr. Warner, as I believe the teller's name is, told him to arrest me. Question. Then you do not know whether the cheque was a forgery or not? Answer. No, sir. I was only obeying the instructions of my employer, Mr. Furlong. I guess he can tell you all about that cheque. The courtroom was crowded, and as soon as Dingfelter stated that he was a detective, one of the city detectives rushed out of the court pell-mell to the office of the chief of police, which was in the opposite end of the building, and informed the chief of what had occurred. The chief rushed into the courtroom, and from that time on, consternation seemed to prevail among all the authorities around the four courts building. Dingfelter was kept upon the witness stand for about two days, and during his entire direct testimony, nearly every question asked him by the prosecuting attorney was objected to by the attorneys for the defence. After McCulloch, as I will call him by his right name hereafter, had been excused from the witness stand, I was called. After being duly sworn and the preliminary questions asked, I was told by the prosecuting attorney to state to the court and jury how I had been approached by Mr. Clover and himself, and what I had done in connection with the case. I gave a detailed account of my work from the start up to that moment, being interrupted occasionally by an objection from the defendant's counsel. When I had finished my direct testimony, all of which has already been related, the counsel for the defence began to cross-examine me. My cross-examination consumed nearly a day and a half. The defendant's counsel first wanted to know how long I had been in the detective business. I answered that I had first become engaged in the business in September, 1862. The attorney said, Then you have had a great deal of experience. I answered that I had. And then he said, Where did you get this cheque? Exhibiting the cheque in question. I asked permission to examine the cheque, which was granted by the court. And after looking at it carefully, I answered, this is one of the blank cheques that I took from Dr. Smith's office in the manner already described. Question. Then you stole this cheque from Dr. Smith's office? Answer. I took that blank cheque from Dr. Smith's office without his knowledge or consent. Question. Who filled out this cheque and signed Dr. Smith's name to it? Answer. That cheque was filled out by one of my employees. I stood alongside of him while he filled it out. He did it under my instructions, and if he had refused to do it, I would have discharged him, and he knew it. And if the law has been violated in any way, I am responsible for it. The attorney for the defence insisted that I give the name of the person who filled out the cheque, but the court overruled the question on the ground that I had assumed the responsibility. The counsel for the defence then said, you know that you were violating the law by having this cheque made out as you did, did you not? I replied, under certain conditions, it might have been a violation of the law. Counsel for the defence asked, you know that it was a forgery, and forgery is a crime under the law. My answer was the same as before, that it would have been forgery under certain conditions. 
but he insisted on me answering him direct yes or no. At this, prosecuting attorney MacDonald appealed to the court, stating that the witness could not answer the question with a direct yes or no, unless permitted to explain what the certain conditions referred to were. The court permitted me to explain under what conditions the making of the cheque would not be considered forgery, to which I replied that, inasmuch as that intent is the essence of crime, and that as there was no intent to obtain money or other valuables by means of this cheque on my part who was responsible for the making of it, and that I was at the bank on the morning that MacCulloch presented the cheque, for the purpose of preventing the teller from cashing the cheque, if he perchance had not noticed that the signature of Dr. Smith was not genuine, and for the further reason that I had promptly apprehended the man who had presented the cheque at the bank for having done so. This was all a matter of court record. Here I wish to say that almost every person in the courtroom, after hearing my testimony as to my obtaining the blank cheques and causing one to be filled out and presented at the bank, were of the opinion that I had gotten myself into serious trouble. Many clung to that opinion until they heard my explanation, and the competent court attorneys saw at a glance that I was safe when I explained that intent was what constituted a crime. I have been asked many, many times since the arrest of MacCulloch and my tussle with him why I caused him to knock me down and to strip the policeman and myself, leaving us in almost a nude condition, and which compelled me to go around several days with my right eye and one side of my face discoloured, as some of them said, in mourning. And my answer has always been that I had decided everything I did in connection with the case was absolutely necessary so that I might obtain the true facts of the case, which were very essential for the proper prosecution of the perpetrator of this heinous crime, as he was the only living person who knew the real facts. I knew that Maxwell was enjoying the notoriety the newspapers were giving him, and I also knew that the public was growing tired of reading about him, and therefore believed that if I could paint my operative as a more desperate criminal for the time being, by the notoriety he would obtain through the papers, it would have the effect of attracting Maxwell's attention to him, so that he might bask in the light that was being attracted to MacCulloch. And, as it turned out, my predictions proved true. I deemed it necessary to have MacCulloch slug me, and make the fight that he did with the police officer and myself, in order to allay any suspicion that might arise in the mind of the chief of police or any of his men. The chief was an alert and experienced officer, and if he suspected for a moment that MacCulloch was not what he represented himself to be, or that he was connected with me, he would have undoubtedly exposed our scheme, and thereby destroyed our efforts, which were for the honest purpose of serving the ends of justice. Both MacCulloch and myself were acting parts, and from the result it seems that the parts were acted well. I could have gotten the blank cheque from Dr. Smith, I have no doubt, merely by asking for it, but he, of course, would have wanted an explanation from me, and if I had explained why I wanted them, he would have been obliged to state the facts on the witness stand when called before the grand jury, and this would have been fatal to my scheme. 
had I told my operative Phillips, who lodged the first complaint against MacCulloch, or Dingfelter, as he called himself, he would have been compelled under oath to have stated the truth. This, too, would have been fatal. My keeping the matter a secret resulted in every person telling the truth, or what they believed to be the truth. I myself did not appear either at police headquarters or at the preliminary hearing, nor before the grand jury, and was not called upon to testify until Maxwell was on trial. Marshal F. MacDonald was sitting in his office one day alone, about a month after Dingfelter had been in jail, and had made such good progress with Maxwell, when William Marion Reedy, better known then as Billy Reedy, entered his office. Reedy was at that time a reporter for the Globe Democrat, and was very popular. He knew every official around the four courts, and in fact every man in St. Louis who was worth knowing. He was a warm friend and great admirer of Mr. MacDonald, and on entering his office and noting that he was alone, he said, Mac, why don't you select the right kind of a fellow and have him locked up in jail with Maxwell? He might succeed in getting the facts as to Preller's murder from him. Mr. MacDonald was startled to hear this suggestion from Mr. Reedy, but being a man of steady nerves, he managed to conceal his surprise. He told Reedy that he did not believe that anything could be accomplished by locking a man up in jail for that purpose. For, said Mac, there are nearly four hundred prisoners in that jail, and a man might be there for months before he could get to Maxwell, and then it is quite likely that his attorneys have already advised him not to talk to any person about his case. Reedy said, It occurred to me that it might be a good thing to do and I therefore made the suggestion to you for what it is worth. But as you do not think it worth while to try it, just let it go. He left the office, and just as soon as MacDonald could don his hat and coat and leave his office unobserved, he hastened to me. I saw at a glance that he was excited and believed something unusual had happened. I greeted him and asked him to be seated, and then said, Mac, what is the matter? He extended his long right arm and exclaimed, Why, the whole thing is up. What's up? I asked. Mac, what do you mean? Why, Billy Reedy came into my office a little while ago and suggested that I pick out the right kind of a fellow and have him locked up in jail so that he might work on Maxwell, he said. Is that all Reedy said? I asked. He then went on and detailed as nearly as he could recollect just what Reedy had said. I asked him what he had said to Reedy, and he told me. I then said, Do you think that Reedy noticed your excitement when he made the suggestion to you? No, he could not have, he replied. I was not excited. I never get excited. You were excited when you came in here, and if Billy Reedy noticed it when he made that suggestion, it might set him to thinking, and inasmuch as you did not take kindly to the suggestion, he might possibly make the suggestion to Chief Harrigan, I said. Oh, no, replied Mac. Billy would not make any suggestions to the Chief. He is my friend, and I appreciate the feeling that prompted him to make the suggestion. But, confound it, I wish he had not thought of it. I said, Mac, we know that Billy Reedy is a bright young fellow, and a great news-gatherer, and a loyal friend of yours. I do not believe he will say anything more about it, and now I think the best thing to do is to quietly await developments. 
My advice was followed, and I do not believe that William Marion Reedy, who is now proprietor and editor of the St. Louis Mirror, has ever known just how much that friendly suggestion of his worried his friend Marshall F. MacDonald. I have told in my story how McCulloch remained in jail and got the facts from Maxwell, and our scheme was not spoiled by Mr. Reedy's suggestion, for he never repeated it to any other person. The testimony at the trial was overwhelming against Maxwell, and the jury before whom this case was tried quickly returned a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree, and Hugh M. Brooks, alias Maxwell, was hung for one of the most cold-blooded murders of the age. The St. Louis Police Department had an exhibit in the Educational Building during the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, St. Louis, which consisted of photographs and police records of criminals, burglars, tools and various weapons. This exhibit also had the noose with which Brooks, alias Maxwell, was hung, and his photograph, and the picture of the two St. Louis officers who brought him back from Auckland, New Zealand. There were thousands of people who viewed this exhibit, and I deem it proper to tell the public that the police department had positively nothing to do with obtaining the evidence that convicted Maxwell. They had really nothing to do with his arrest, other than sending out his description. He was arrested through the efforts of Captain Leas, Chief of Police of San Francisco, California. His conviction was due to my efforts and the work of my operative, McCulloch, and to Messrs. Clover and MacDonald. Mr. Clover paid the expenses from his own pocket, and Mr. MacDonald deserved a great deal more credit than he was accorded for the masterful way in which he handled the prosecution. But not one of these names were mentioned in the exhibit at the World's Fair. Mr. Clover paid about $600 out of his own personal funds for the expenses incurred in obtaining the evidence, and I got a black eye and a swollen jaw as my compensation. Dingfelter, while in the jail, also made the acquaintance of two brothers by the name of Johnson, who had been arrested in New Orleans and brought to St. Louis for safekeeping by the United States authorities on the charge of having had a large number of Brazilian bonds printed. These bonds were counterfeit, utterly worthless to anyone who purchased them. The government secret service had captured a lot of these spurious bonds and had brought the prisoners to St. Louis until they could be tried in the federal court. The Johnsons took a liking to Dingfelter and told him all about their scheme, where they had got the printing done, by whom, and all the other facts of their crime. Dingfelter did not solicit any confidences, but they, supposing him to be a shrewd crook, thought their secret was safe, until Maxwell was on trial, and Dingfelter, as he was known to them, took the stand and testified, giving his right name, John F. McCulloch, and his business, that of a detective. As soon as the Johnson brothers learned who and what Dingfelter was, they sent word to the United States authorities that they had admitted to Detective Dingfelter everything pertaining to their guilt, and they were willing to plead guilty to the charges pending against them in the federal court. This they did when they were arraigned for trial. End of chapter 4